Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Before us in John chapter 5 is one of the most significant texts in the entire record of the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, and we start today with verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son of Man gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Early on the morning of February the 22nd, in the year 1901, the passenger steamship, city of Rio de Janeiro, approached San Francisco in a dense fog and behind schedule. They were coming in blind, but the captain and the pilot made the decision to enter the harbor. At 5.18 in the morning, the ship ran aground. They hit rock. One witness said it was like an earthquake intensified many times. The damage to the ship was massive. Pretty much the entire underside of the vessel had been ripped open. The cargo holds in the engine room flooded immediately. Now, this ship had been built in 1878 before they started using bulkheads to seal the different sections. Water poured in. Here is where things got worse. Most of the crew was Chinese. Most of the passengers were either Chinese or Japanese immigrants coming to America, and the officers were American who spoke English. The language barriers added to the confusion. Things got so bad that the passengers fought for the lifeboats, sinking them. Fistfights broke out over life jackets. And even more tragic is that just a few hundred yards away was a rescue station, but they were completely unaware of the situation for two hours until a lifeboat was sighted emerging through the fog. About 130 people died. One survivor was a young American journalist, Russell Harper. And in the wreck, at least one of his legs was broken, a compound fracture on his right leg. Some reports say both legs were broken. His ribs and his head were bruised. He lost consciousness and somehow fell into the water. 
and when he regained his senses, he quickly realized that all he could do was float. Well, several hours later, rescuers found him nearly drowned, completely helpless, and they pulled him to safety. Harry Ironside, the famous pastor who would go on to become the pastor at Moody Bible Church, at the time he lived in California, and he just happened to be on the beach that morning. As he heard the story of the rescue of Russell Harper, he was struck by the obvious parallels between this journalist and the shipwreck in the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5, because both men were crippled in the legs, and neither man could do anything to help themselves. Now, this was the scene at the pool of Bethesda. A crowd of people gathered desperate for another chance at life. They were helpless. Some could not see. Others were weak and withered. It was a pitiful collection of broken humanity. But the author of life had healed this man and commanded him to walk about. The Hebrew Messiah created a direct conflict with the Jewish men of religion in order to demonstrate that he is God's solution to sin and separation from him. Skip down to verse 39. We'll get to this verse in our coming studies. But notice what the Messiah told them. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. The Jews searched the sacred writings, the Old Testament. They poured through the scriptures, searching, trying to answer the question of what must be done to please God. But they missed the purpose. The scriptures testify of Christ. Jump back to our text with verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. The Messiah had challenged them. He had directly challenged their rules about the Sabbath. He directly challenged their authority. Remember verse 15, the man had told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Jesus was the one who told this man to take up his bed and walk. Hatred had set in. They wanted to undermine his ministry and put Jesus Christ to death. This wasn't an accident. Christ wanted this confrontation. This was the opening battle that would eventually lead to the cross. The darkened hearts of men plotted to kill the one who dared to challenge their authority. They had no heart for the grace that could meet a sinner's need. Jesus highlighted their hypocrisy in Luke 14 when he asked the Pharisees, which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Take a look at verses 17 and 18 here in John 5. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. No words from the Jews are directly recorded by John, but we read that Jesus answered them. He responded to their plotting. He responded to their opposition. Genesis 2 tells us that on the seventh day of the creation week, God rested from his creative work. But listen to that text closely, because nowhere in it do we read that God does not work at all on the seventh day. It says that God rested, meaning God was done with the work of creation. 
Genesis 2 records, And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. God rested from the work of creation because it was finished, and the Sabbath was intended to be a celebration of God's provision through his creation. But God was still operating and working in his creation. He was still providing for and protecting his people. And that is really the point of verse 17. The Lord was forcing the Jews to consider the question, does God keep the Sabbath law? And if not, what does this mean? Is God guilty of breaking the law? Or if God does observe the Sabbath, who keeps the universe running while he rests? The teaching of most of the rabbis then was that God does work on the Sabbath. Otherwise, the providence of God would be suspended every week for 24 hours, which does not make a lot of sense. Jesus testified, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. His relationship to the law was the same as God's, not the same as man's. In order for this to be any defense against breaking the Sabbath, Jesus had to be claiming that he is God. Yes, Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. Yes, Jesus told the man to take up his bed and walk. But how much more is Jesus working all seven days of the week in the redemption of men? And how much more is he working as he continues to hold all of creation together? Colossians 1.17 teaches us, In him all things consist. Hebrews 1, Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. He alone sustains the universe. Be thankful for it. I mean, have you ever stopped and considered what would happen if God would suddenly stop working? It is because of him that we breathe. It is because of him the universe continues to exist. It is because of him that all of creation is sustained. God never stops doing that which is good. Jesus said, my Father. Speaking of his unique relationship with the Father, it is God who has authority over the Sabbath. You know, over the years, I've had a number of people try to argue that Jesus was not God, but yet still claim to follow Christ. But the Jews understood exactly what Jesus claimed. They recognized that Jesus was calling God his own Father. They picked up on the idea if the Father and the Son both were working, it meant that Jesus was claiming equality with the Father. And it revolted them to hear this, to hear Jesus put his work on par with the work of God the Father. You know, breaking the Jewish rules were one thing, claiming to be God, that was another. This man needed to die. Why? Because he made himself equal with God. In their minds, he had blasphemed. It was considered to be a direct challenge to God unless, of course, it was true, which was exactly the claim of Jesus and the early church. But they couldn't just take him into custody because in order to be arrested for this type of blasphemy, he would have had to come right out and say the sacred name of God, Yahweh. But he didn't. Jesus walked a fine line because it was not yet the hour of the cross. And so he claimed equality, but did not give them the smoking gun that they needed. Be careful here. 
Jesus did not claim to take the place of God. Jesus did not claim to be a different God, a substitute God to Yahweh. This is what the Jews would have thought of with the statement, making himself equal with God. In other words, he didn't come to start a new religion. He came to restore a broken relationship. What Jesus, the one and only Son of God, claimed was that he was sent by God the Father on a mission, doing the works of God, obedient and bringing glory to the Father. This is the role of God the Son. Jesus answers in verse 19 and explains beautifully for us. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Most assuredly, truly, truly. Now, the main thrust of verse 19 is that for Jesus being equal with God, it does not mean independence from the Father. Think of this statement. The Son can do nothing of himself. I think a better way of translating this would be to say the Son can do nothing on his own initiative or that the Son can do nothing from himself, meaning he is the Son of God, full deity, but he is always in submission to the will of the Father. In chapter 8, Jesus testified, The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. But notice this next statement in verse 19. The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. God the Father and God the Son, equal but they have different roles. God the Father initiates, he sends, he commands, commissions, and grants. God the Son responds, obeys, performs the will of the Father, and receives authority. There is unity in action with the Father. The Son of God had become the Son of Man, and yet as a man he still possessed all the attributes of deity but he only acted in submission to the will of the Father. Take the last part of the verse, verse 19. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Here's the point. It is impossible for the Son to take independent, self-determined action that would set him against the Father, because everything that God the Son does is in agreement with the Father. Being the perfect son of God, it means identifying himself with the will and the work of the Father. Here's another way to say it. If Jesus just acted on his own, out of the will of the Father, it would be to deny his role as the Son. The only one that is capable of perfect submission to the Father is God the Son, perfect deity and perfect humanity in the person of Jesus the Christ. This was something that most of his enemies never understood. Verse 20, it builds off of this. Take a look. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Keep the flow of thought. This verse explains how it is that the Son can do whatever the Father does. And the reason is for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. Here comes some Greek speak. All of the verbs in verse 20 are in the present tense, meaning this is the ongoing activity. Stop and think this through with me. I know some of this doctrine can hurt the head a little bit, but it truly is beautiful. 
If the father, out of his love for the son, shows him all that he does, and the son in turn obeys him perfectly and does whatever the father does, then what happened when people observed the son? By acting in obedience to the father, God the son was revealing the father as he carried out the father's will. The obedience and dependence that Jesus showed in his submission to the father were examples of perfect submission, perfect obedience, to the point that we can actually say that all that Jesus does is what the Father wills and does, so that it is nothing less than the revelation of God the Father. Jesus will testify in chapter 14 to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Here's the message of this verse. Here's how this ties back to verses 17 and 18. Jesus was claiming equality with God. Jesus was not taking on the role of God the Father, but Jesus had come to reveal the Father. Then in the last part of verse 20, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. The Father will show the Son greater works than these. This is one of these places where the context did drives our understanding, tying directly back to the healing of this man in the first part of the chapter. And this would include the teaching of Christ regarding the Sabbath. The Son, in obedience to the Father, would perform greater works than what they had witnessed. Verse 21 will teach us that one of these greater works is giving life to the dead. Verse 22 will teach us that God the Son will carry out the judgment of God. All of this was that you may marvel. Strange wording to our ears, that you may marvel. Keeping in mind in this text, Jesus was dealing with those who hated him. Jesus was dealing with his enemies. They had no faith in him. So the way that he could reveal more of the Father to them was by his works, was by his signs, by his teaching and his divine authority as the life giver and judge. Listen closely to what Jesus would tell the Jews later on in John chapter 10. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Do you understand the efforts that God the Son went through even to bring some of those that persecuted him into the family of God? Because if they would have just recognized that Jesus was carrying out the works of the Father, then this could have been their first step toward faith in him. Verse 21 in your text. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. The Lord is claiming to have absolute power over the dead. Remember that in the Old Testament, the raising of the dead was something that only God himself could do. Just to give you an example, we read in Ezekiel 37, verse 13, Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. This was something that the Jewish rabbis taught, that only God could raise people from the dead. Elijah in 1 Kings 17 might come to mind, or Elisha in 2 Kings 4. But they were seen as exceptions, as representatives of God in raising the dead. But the claim of Jesus here in John 5, it went far beyond being just a representative of God. 
Raising a person from the dead was a sign of the presence of God. Because in order to be able to give life, you must be the source of life. Only God has the power to restore life because it means overcoming sin and death. And it is hard to see how anyone can believe that Jesus did not claim to be God. Notice again the statement in the second half of verse 21. Even so, the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, as we just said back in verse 19, the Son only does what is in the will of the Father. But understand this. The will of the Son is in complete agreement with the Father. It isn't like there is division in the Godhead. The will of the Father and the will of the Son are one, so much so that it can be said that God the Son can make these decisions to give life to whom he will. Now, pay close attention to this. Verse 21 has two clauses, two parts to it. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, that's the first part, and even so the Son gives life to whom he will. These two parts of the verse are in parallel meaning that this verse is defining for us what it is that Christ is referring to by saying gives life to whom he will. In the first part of the verse, it is the Father raising the dead and giving life. And so this must be the same thought in the second part of the verse of Christ giving life. This is very consistent with the Jewish understanding of the first century that the resurrection from the dead refers to the future. And this is what we're going to get into in verses 28 and 29. Skip down to verse 28 for just a second. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. You see, it's common to look at verse 21 and either think of Lazarus in John chapter 11, or think of the resurrection of Christ himself. But neither one is really the focus here in this verse. The focus is on the eternal life that Christ provides. The focus is on the physical resurrection yet to come. This is 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, the end of verse 21, once again, the Son gives life to whom he will. The text, it answers for us the age-old question, who it is that Christ chooses to give life to. Skip down to verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Notice the last part of the verse, but has passed from death into life. What a glorious truth for those who have trusted in the atoning sacrifice of God the Son. We have eternal life, not just in the future someday, but today, right now. Now back up to verse 22 with me. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. This is really the other side of things, isn't it? God the Father and God the Son give life, and God the Father has entrusted to the Son the role of being the judge of men, being the judge of those who disobey the gospel of Christ. This goes back to John 3.18. Remember the teaching there. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Again, in the Old Testament, God is seen as the judge of all the earth. And this is how Abraham referred to the Lord all the way back in Genesis 18, the judge of all the earth. And all throughout the Old Testament, you have this picture of God being the judge of both his covenant people and the surrounding nations. But this judgment in John, it points us to the future judgment of Christ. Revelation 20, listen to what it says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face on the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus, God the Son, it is stated without question in the Gospel of John that the role of being the judge of men, it belongs to him. All judgment, meaning the judgment seat of Christ for believers and the great white throne judgment for unbelievers, Revelation 20, which we just read. So think with me that in order to be the judge of all men, you must have personal knowledge of every single human being that has ever lived. He knows the heart of every person. In other words, by claiming to be the judge of men, Jesus was once again claiming to be God. And notice this is the point in verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 23 is the reason that God the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. To honor the Son as you honor the Father means that you understand and believe that the Son is equal with the Father, that he is God and he deserves our worship. And if you believe that Jesus was just a man, you're not honoring the Son as God intended. The Jews thought that they honored the Father, but they dishonored Christ. Jesus tells us that to not honor him means that you do not honor the Father who sent him. And the Apostle Paul would go on to teach that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Honoring the Son brings honor to the Father. Those who say they worship God but deny the very deity of Christ do not have faith in the Father or the Son. You cannot honor God if you dishonor Christ. Verse 24, our last verse, take a look at the mercy of God. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Again, most assuredly, truly, truly, verse 21 taught us that the son gives life to whom he will. 
This is who he gives life to. This is where we see the great mercy of God. And notice with me, it is the word that brings life. Those who hear his word is living and powerful, hearing the word of God, then belief faith in the Father who sent the Son, believing what God has said in His Word. Faith in the Son of God is also faith in the Father who sent Him. The one who hears and believes has eternal life and shall not come into judgment. Condemnation. That's how the King James translates it. It reads, shall not come into condemnation. Believers will stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, not for the punishment of sin, but to determine your inheritance in the coming messianic kingdom. That's not the subject here. This is referring to the truth of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Be thankful for the forgiveness that is found in the blood of the Lamb. This life is a present possession for all who believe. We have passed from death to life. Paul taught this in Ephesians 2 when he wrote that we were once dead in our sin but made alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved, raised up together, and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And there is a beautiful little truth tucked into our last verse in John that's easy to miss because the verb for has passed in this phrase has passed from death into life. It's in the perfect tense, which points to the lasting effects of something that has already happened. In other words, the wording used, it teaches the eternal security of the believer in Jesus Christ. On March 11th, 1991, eight-year-old Anthony Henderson befuddled the most powerful man in the world at the time, President George Bush. President Bush was visiting Anthony's school and had sat down beside Anthony to read him a book. Suddenly, in the midst of the reading, Anthony Henderson just blurted out, are you really the president? Well, the president was a little surprised by this, but he could see the young boy was serious. President Bush told him, Yeah, you mean you didn't know that? Did you think I was a pretend guy or something? Mr. Bush then muttered, how can I prove it to you? Then he proceeded to pull out identification from his wallet. Let's see now. Here's my driver's license. See, it says B-U-S-H, Bush. My name is George Herbert Walker Bush. (laughs) But Anthony didn't seem convinced. And so President Bush then pulled out some more of his identification that he thought would persuade the boy of the truth. Here's my American Express card. Here's a picture of my grandchild. And here is one of my grandsons playing baseball. Finally, Mr. Bush said, I guess that is all I have to show you unless you will accept that black limousine out there. Or maybe I'll give you an autograph. Oh, no, Anthony replied. The teacher said we can't take autographs. There's a picture in a March issue of USA Today from 1991 of Anthony Henderson sitting with a puzzled president examining his American Express card. Don't leave home without it. But even that didn't help George Herbert Walker Bush with Anthony Henderson. The entire Christian faith, it hinges on one issue. Did Jesus lie to us? If you look at the actual words of Jesus, it's obvious. It's obvious who he claimed to be. 
And it is just as obvious who the Jewish authorities believe Jesus was claiming to be. But every man and every woman at some point has to wrestle with this issue. Do you believe the claims of Jesus Christ? John did. Even as an old man, the last of the apostles, banished to an island for the crime of being a follower of Christ, he still believed, John still had faith, that Jesus Christ is God's solution to sin and separation from him. Inspired by the Spirit of God, he reached back into his memories and wrote down the story of Christ for you, for me, so that we might have life in the Son of God. The Apostle John believed that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I challenge you to consider the claims of Jesus Christ and then respond to him in faith. First for salvation. First, by trusting in Jesus as your Savior, that he died in your place. He took the penalty for your sins. There is forgiveness in the blood of Christ. There is reconciliation in the blood of Christ. But you must receive him. Trust in him for eternal life. But trusting Christ doesn't stop there. Faith should continue. It doesn't always, but faith should continue. Some Christians go years without ever accepting the beauty of their new identity in Christ. Let me explain it this way. There's an old, old story of a girl that came from a wealthy family. She was a beautiful young girl, except for one thing. When she was little, her nose had been broken. It had never really healed right. It was crooked, kind of bent out of shape. She focused on it. She looked at it often. It really wasn't that big of a deal, but to her it was. To her it made her ugly. She thought it destroyed her beauty. Finally, her family hired a plastic surgeon who changed the shape of the girl's nose. He did his work, and the moment came when they took the bandages off. The doctor saw that the operation had been a total success. Her nose, it fit her face perfectly. She was stunning. She was beautiful. He held up the mirror for the girl to see, but so deeply embedded was the girl's image of herself that when she saw herself in the mirror, she couldn't see any change. She broke into tears and cried out, I knew it wouldn't work. I just knew it wouldn't work. It took six months before the girl would look in the mirror and see the beauty. It took six months before she accepted and recognized what had already taken place. And when she did, her entire outlook began to change. If you're in Christ, if you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, hold up that mirror. Hold up the Word of God closely and take a good look at what you have become because Christ has made you something beautiful. But we need to accept it. We need to recognize our new identity before we will change. It's faith. It's trust in the promises of Christ because trust, leads to obedience. And it is learning to live in fellowship with the Savior, always ready to give an answer for the hope within. If you find this broadcast helpful to your faith, please remember that we are listener-supported. You know, we don't spend a lot of time asking for money, but we do depend on your prayers and your support to cover our costs. We're a missions team dedicated to reaching people with the gospel of Christ and the teaching of the Word of God. Most of our expenses, we cover ourselves. 
And when people give, it actually helps us to cover the expense of airtime for Christian radio stations, the expense for the online platforms, and even the equipment we have to use to broadcast. We're looking for partners who would like to help us, even those smaller monthly donations. It helps us to tell others of God's amazing grace. You can find out more on returntotheword.com. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 